This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. Sophie is off tonight. We begin with breaking details involving the death of a child in Langley. The Integrated Homicide Investigation Team collecting evidence today at an apartment complex and asking for some help. Our Ramina Dea is there. Ramina, this little girl, just seven years old. It's absolutely awful, Chris, learning the details today. For three days now, investigators have been on scene and concerned residents have been wondering what has been going on at this apartment building behind me. I hit now releasing the identity of that little girl. When emergency services arrived, they found seven-year-old Aliyah Rose deceased. Langley residents can't shake the image of watching the little girl's body removed from the scene. That's really sad. It's just like kind of unsettling. <laughs> Looking for more information. Yeah, I'm definitely curious what happened. Seven-year-old Aaliyah Rose was discovered in a fifth-floor rental apartment Sunday night around 9.30. Residents tell Global News they heard banging and screams hours earlier around 3 in the morning. It's unclear if it's connected. Homicide investigators went door to door with the child's picture. They just asked me, did I, do you know this and that? I said, no, okay, you know. A 36-year-old woman was taken to hospital. There was a, a person removed uh, from the building on uh, a stretcher, loaded onto an ambulance and, and uh, driven away. Are you looking for a suspect, Corporal? The investigation is still ongoing. We believe the 36-year-old is involved in this investigation. We believe this was an isolated incident. Our investigators have a firm grasp, a firm understanding of what happened, and we don't believe that, uh, that, the, that the public is in any danger. Did she allegedly harm the child? At this point, I can say that she was involved in this investigation. We know that from what, what the investigation that's been conducted so far. I can't get into any further details on that. Investigators now asking for the public's help so they can figure out why Aaliyah was killed. It's very tragic. You know, it's not fair for a young person to lose their life when they could be out playing in the, in the sun. Um, it's tragic. All right, Ramina, the investigation, of course, is ongoing and they're trying to determine a timeline. Mm -hmm. What do they need from the public? Chris, IHIT is asking the public to pay particular attention to Sunday, July 22nd. That's just two days ago. They want to know if anybody saw Aaliyah at a park nearby, maybe at the mall. She might have been out playing with friends or even here at the apartment building. They're saying that this information is critical to investigators right now. Chris. All right, let's hope someone offers something. Thanks, Romina. And now some scary moments in Deep Cove this afternoon when fire broke out at a senior's home. This is a live shot now from Global One, crews battling flare-ups for most of the afternoon. Right now it appears to be mostly out, although you do see some smoke coming from the ruins. The complex 
really badly damaged and half of it's destroyed. Nadia Stewart is live nearby that scene tonight. And Nadia, at one point, firefighters had to help the seniors down ladders to get them to safety. Yeah, that's right, Chris. Some pretty tense moments earlier this afternoon. Take a look at this photo. Uh, firefighters had to help seniors down from the third and fourth floors where the fire had spread to. Definitely uh, some tense moments, even as neighbors were down below watching all of this unfold. They were called to the scene at around one o'clock this afternoon for an apartment fire. They said that about one or two units uh, were involved, but of course this was a stubborn fire. That is what uh, the deputy fire chief is telling us. And that was the biggest challenge as they continued to get this work to get this fire under control. Lots of smoke. But the good news is, as far as they know, everyone made it out safely. We heard shouts and, and we smelt smoke and we came out the back of the house just there. And my son, with older people coming out on their own, looking confused and, and frightened. And he went in and he got two little ladies out and we brought them over and everybody was rallying around. The neighbourhood is so friendly and so helpful and everybody just got to it and made sure they were out of the smoke, out of the, the heat, sitting down with water. All you can do. What we have is on the fourth floor, the actual fire units is now collapsed into the middle. So now what's creating an issue for us is that all that collapse is now protecting some of the rooms that are actually still on fire and we're trying to get access to that. That's, our mo that's the stubborn part for us right now is just getting access to some of the pieces that are still involved. Eight people have been sent to hospital. No update yet, Chris, on their condition, but I can tell you that there is lots of support here for those seniors who've been displaced. The Salvation Army is here and also folks from the district. Back to you. All right, Nadia Stewart in Deep Cove tonight. Thanks, Nadia. Well, despite obvious signage warning against it, a 30-year-old woman has died after getting stuck in a clothing donation bin. And tonight, some are suggesting it's time to change the design of those bins. Aaron MacArthur has more on how neighbours responded and why some feel the danger is not being taken seriously. The warnings are clear. And so is the danger. Early Monday morning, a woman tried to see what was inside a donation bin near the West Point Great Community Center. The only thing left Tuesday are flowers marking where she died. We encountered a very small, very tragic scene here of a, a woman just the bottom, you know, from her torso down or from her waist down, just hanging out of this bin, totally inert. And, um, and her boyfriend saying, I just got here, she's not responsive. The woman's boyfriend wouldn't talk to us on camera, but said they were recently homeless and living in a tent near Jericho Beach. When their stuff was stolen, the woman he called Svetlana tried to scrounge for something to wear. The fire department says this type of call is all too common. There is an entrapment hazard either in the bin or in the mechanism. There have been several deaths attributed to donation bins, recently in Surrey and in Maple Ridge. The gate mechanism, designed to keep used clothing safe and secure, and not much thought given to people's safety. There are now calls for a rethink of how these bins are designed. We have experienced in Metro Vancouver three deaths in four years. One death is too many. Three is a cry and a call for action. It is a cry for change. You know, there is a level of, of discrimination that's happening because there have been several deaths, and if this were a car, you know, with an obvious manufacturing 
problem or, you know, a baby seed or something, um, it would have, maybe the word would have gone out quicker. The coroner service in the early stages of investigating this senseless death. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The search continues for a high school teacher missing near Vernon. 58-year-old John Keeley went missing last Thursday after kayaking on Mabel Lake. When he didn't return by dinner time, police were called. Vernon search and rescue and RCMP dive teams have been searching the lake, but so far there's no sign of Keeley. RCMP plan on taking to the air to look later this week. More calls tonight for the province to stop delaying and update the laws needed to bring ride hailing to Metro Vancouver. Today, MAD is throwing its support behind the taxi alternative, saying it's hypocritical to ask people to make responsible choices and yet restrict those choices. Ted Chernecki has more on the growing push for change. There are too many drunk drivers on our roads, and B.C. isn't giving the impaired more opportunities to find a safer way to travel. Despite an NDP election promise to have ride-sharing up and running by this Christmas, we now know that won't happen until late 2019, and that is simply unacceptable to Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Ride-sharing services are a crucial way that we can reduce impaired driving and improve safety on our roads. It's an option that should be available to people of British Columbia now. Also at today's news conference was Coquitlam's mayor, who this past Canada Day saw firsthand a wheelchair-bound woman waiting three hours for an accessible taxi, and he frequently picks up his daughter at 2 o'clock in the morning. If she's called to work overtime, she'll probably arrive at the Braid Street station after 2, when the SkyTrain is pretty much done, and the buses aren't available, and there's a taxi company right across the street, but it's not taking calls from the SkyTrain station because it's doing uh, a more lucrative market between uh, various drinking establishments. Recently, TransLink started a pilot project called Night Bus. Service for 10 different routes starts at 2 a.m. from Granville and West Georgia. And in a statement, B.C.'s Transportation Minister said organizations like MAD are right. So last Thursday, we announced that we were putting 500 more taxis on the streets until we get a system in place. The system simply needs to expand very quickly. And there's a system that other cities have adopted successfully. Let's find the appropriate adjustments that need to be made. But let's do it now. Let's do it quickly. When asked if the delays were related to a taxi lobby group, MAD points out this is not about taking away jobs, but enhancing options. Ted Schenecki, Global News. Well, let's bring in Keith Baldry with a timeline of those broken ride-sharing promises. Keith, this goes back a while. It goes back a while, and back to the previous government as well. The Liberals dropped the ball on this. They didn't implement uh, ride-sharing. They had a lot of time to do it. It was a key promise in the NDP campaign platform in 2017. In fact, the key line is John Horgan and the BC NDP support the passing of new rules to introduce ride-sharing in BC in 2017. Well, 2017 is come and gone. What's next? Well, there's going to be six bills amended in the BC legislature come this fall. Those are the legislative changes required. ICBC needs some changes as well. That's likely to come in the spring. And now uh, Claire Trevenna has announced ride sharing will not, uh, is now targeted not to come to BC until the fall of 2019. But there are further barriers that have to be eliminated, Chris, before ride sharing can take hold. There has to be, currently there's a cap on the number of taxi licenses. Uber can't function very well under that model. There are municipal boundary rules, another threat to true ride sharing. And finally, there's a proposal for a new uh, levy per ride for new taxi services. That comes out of a government commission report. So you add it all 
all up, Chris. I'm still not very optimistic. We're going to see rise sharing anytime soon in this province. I think uh, September 2019 is probably an optimistic guess at best. Hmm. All right. Thanks very much, Keith Baldry and Victoria. Now to the wildfires burning in the Okanagan. More good news today with crews steadily making progress and some residents allowed to return home. Kylie Stanton has more on what the key concerns are tonight and how the community is rallying behind those working on the front lines. From the air, they take aim at the ground. This is how crews quite literally fight fire with fire. So what we've got here is a red dragon machine that drops a, uh, a plastic sphere ball. Filled with a chemical that are injected with a second chemical which creates a reaction and, allow, and creates a fire. It's the tactic that was used successfully Sunday to merge the Mount Aeneas and Monroe Creek wildfires, now estimated to be nearly 1,800 hectares. While it increased the size of the blaze by about 10%, it decreased the risk, using up the excess fuel, allowing those living here to finally come back home, a feeling that can be summed up in just one word. Relief. <laughs> It's been a long week, yeah. While the evacuation order has been lifted and downgraded to an alert, the road here remains closed. Only local traffic is being let through at this point. Firefighters still working in the area saying it's too dangerous at this point and needs to be fully secure. As you can see from this sign here and many more along this road, those efforts aren't going unnoticed. I did this part, explain. Yeah, we really just wanted to thank them. This is the least we can do. Just a thought that they would leave their areas to come and protect ours. Uh, there are no words. None. And so instead, the community is jumping into action. This team has been busy delivering donated Starbucks coffee and fresh fruit to firefighters on the front lines. Based on the forecast, they're going to need it. Hot and dry? Yeah, it makes the work hard. It's hard on crews. But it's the wind that becomes the factor, the biggest concern, also the most difficult to predict. It would be in the event there was a thunder cell come overhead and the winds become erratic and strong and gusty. That's really the fear at this point for us is that something like that comes along. Kelly Stanton, Global News, near Peachland. And that Lower Mainland couple you may have heard about whose wedding was on hold after their venue was put on evacuation order ended up getting hitched thanks to an outpouring of support from the Okanagan community. Ronnie Quetney and Tyler Balaban were set to say I do at the Fitzpatrick Winery south of Peachland this past Saturday. But just about three days before that, the Fitzpatrick family vineyards at Greta Ranch forced to shut down due to an evacuation order. The couple took to social media for some help and managed to secure another venue to tie the knot. Now honeymooning in Thailand, the newlyweds are forever grateful. It was a tough moment for both of us. Uh, we had to kind of dive into just 48 hours of how can we make this happen. Reached out on Twitter and Instagram and just got an incredible amount of support from everyone. The support was overwhelming. It was so, in, we are so incredibly touched and we feel so lucky. Um, as Ty mentioned, to just even have um, not just the love of our friends and family, but complete strangers that just wanted to make our day perfect. And at the end, it was. The couple ended up getting married at Quail's Gate Winery instead, and the ceremony, they tell us, went off without a hitch. Congratulations. Coming up a little later as well. Right now, though, a global news investigation is raising some concern over alleged links between BC's money laundering probe and a casino cruise on the South China Sea tied to Great Canadian nearly 20 years ago. 
Great Canadian later went on to build Richmond's River Rock Casino, where the laundering exploded. John Waugh with a disturbing account from someone who was aboard the China Sea Discovery and why others call this revelation a bombshell. Years before high rollers hit the VIP rooms of the River Rock Casino in Richmond, its owner, Great Canadian Gaming Corporation, was testing the waters with a casino cruise on the South China Sea. We're digging something 15 years ago, but I mean, those red flags were raised there. Proka Avramovich, who asked that his voice be altered in fear for his personal safety, was aboard the China Sea Discovery as a great Canadian security manager in 2001. He says the one-year venture was filled with suspicious activity, sketchy people, even an alleged ransom situation. We've been kind of kept hostage and in China, and we couldn't leave the ship or the port. A global news investigation shows the crews may also connect Great Canadian to an alleged partnership with the late Cheng Yutong once Hong Kong's third richest man and one of the major players in a Macau casino monopoly. No legitimate operation should be doing business with Cheng Yutong. This is a close business associate of many, many years with Stanley Ho. Both Cheng and Ho are known to police and gambling regulators around the world for alleged associations to organize crime. Those allegations have never been proven and always denied. This is a bombshell. Everything about the River Rock Casino has had the appearance of following the Macau business model. There are no records showing Great Canadian ever registered the alleged partnership with BC regulators. They check out that person's background, their financial relationships, their business dealings to make sure they're appropriate to be involved in BC gaming. But the failed cruise folded the year before those regulations came in. This just shows what an amateur hour the casino industry and regulatory uh, infrastructure was. In a statement, Great Canadian writes the company's interest in the TSS China Sea Discovery did not require registration with the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch GPEB or any other BC-based gaming regulatory body. Adding a warning that extrapolating from this business venture would be a disservice. But when asked directly about Great Canadian's partners on the China Sea Discovery, and if it's ever done business with Cheng Yutong or his subsidiary companies, we were told there was no further comment. Why are they not being transparent? That's the question. The man on the China Sea Discovery says it likely served as a model for organized crime in Asia to get criminal activity and money laundering into BC casinos. He has to be connected to what's going on right now. Strengthening calls for a public inquiry, which would include looking at if a problem plagued crews 17 years ago, continues to haunt BC casinos today. John Hua, Global News. Nearly 48 hours after a mass shooting on Toronto's popular Danforth Avenue claimed the lives of two young victims, new details are emerging about the alleged gunman's troubled past. Camille Karamali reports from Toronto with the latest on the investigation. A police source tells Global News 29-year-old Faisal Hussein was known to police for having a history of mental health concerns dating back to 2010. He was twice apprehended by Toronto police under the Mental Health Act. The source also said Hussein thought he was the Joker, a villain from the Batman series and liked replica handguns. As police raided Hussein's apartment Monday, his family released a statement acknowledging their son's mental health challenges. And it seemed like he was doing well because he started working um, in a grocery store nearby. 
but they dispute revelations about Hussein, saying as a minor he loved Batman movies no more than anyone else, and while he once owned a BB gun, he wasn't fascinated by guns. Every time he saw you, he'd smile, greet you, polite, respectful, humble, quiet. As people slowly stream back onto the Danforth after Sunday's tragedy, I will continue to come down. That's, I wasn't scared of bringing my grandkids. They're choosing to focus on the victims, 18-year-old Reese Fallon and a 10-year-old girl instead of the alleged perpetrator. A makeshift memorial outside Malvern Collegiate where Fallon was a student. She was incredibly smart, uh, incredibly witty, and had an incredible sense of, uh, of uh, ethics and morals, a very strong moral compass. My heart is just broken. Mark and Julie Steele have a strong connection with Fallon's family. Reese was supposed to babysit their daughter this summer. We're just devastated by that and, and just the reality is, is just setting in that, that she's not going to be there. Malvern Collegiate starting a scholarship in her name for students who want to practice nursing like Fallon once dreamed of doing. Reese was a special, special kid and so we're hoping that this will be a way for her family to know she'll never be forgotten. Two lives tragically taken while police continue to try and unravel the life of a man whose motive still remains a mystery. Camille Karamali, Global News. Canada's justice system is under fire tonight from the widower of Vancouver Island RCMP officer Sarah Beckett. Brad Ashenbrenner lost his wife and the mother of his two children when Kenneth Fenton smashed into her cruiser while drunk. Ashenbrenner is outraged by Fenton's sentence for impaired driving just weeks after the crash and spoke to our Richard Zussman about the need for higher minimum sentences. Every Mother's Day and her birthday, we always write her cards. On every wall in Brad Ashenbrenner's home, there's something his two boys can remember their mother's constable Sarah Beckett by. The RCMP officer was killed on duty two years ago by an impaired Kenneth Fenton. That's my only focus is the boys. That's, all, that's my only focus is to make sure that they're taken care of. The grieving father is now speaking out publicly in an attempt to change the laws. Fenton was sentenced to four years in jail for killing Beckett and an additional 18 months for a separate impaired driving case that badly injured his girlfriend. you got to raise the minimum sentence guidelines. It's got to be brought up from, let's say, their 90 days to five years. Let's start five years, go from there. Fenton did not receive the maximum 10-year sentence because, in part, he pled guilty. He did not have uh, previous uh, criminal uh, convictions uh, for impaired driving. Uh, so, uh, for example, it would be considered uh, you could have a more serious case if somebody denied responsibility uh, and put the family through a trial. Beckett is remembered here at a memorial at the B.C. Legislature, but Ashenbrenner is hoping her legacy is far bigger than this. I don't want this to happen to somebody else. That's not right. It's not fair to anybody. There is more in Ashenbrenner's mind. He says he doesn't understand why the charge of fleeing the scene was dropped for Fenton in Beckett's death. Nor does he understand why Fenton didn't get the strictest penalty possible. But as he holds close his memories of his wife, he knows he can't control those things. Instead, focusing on ensuring others don't suffer through what he and his kids have. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Panic in Greece as thousands flee deadly wildfires. Chaos and confusion on the beaches as a hastily assembled flotilla scrambled to get people away from the inferno. Other victims, blackened by smoke and soot, huddle on the coastline waiting for rescue, which for many 
came too late or not at all. At least 74 people are dead. Some of the victims died in their cars as they tried to get away. Others huddled together, embracing when they realized there was no escape. Tonight, a gruesome search through charred homes and blackened cars for those who couldn't outrun the flames. Across Greece, 47 fires broke out Monday, engulfing hillsides, racing toward the coast. Overnight, the inferno turned this seaside tourist town into a death trap, sending people running into the sea, swimming for their lives. Some rescued by fishing boats, but not all could be saved. On land, victims burned to death behind the wheel, a six-month-old baby among the dead. This man desperately looking for his wife. He says the fire sped toward them like a flaming tidal wave. He grabbed his three-year-old son and didn't look back. I took my baby and uh, ran towards the sea. While my, my wife, I didn't know what happened. I think she burned herself here. For many, the blaze simply spread too fast. Rescuers say they found the bodies of 26 people huddled together, hugging. Now, entire neighborhoods are gone, burned to the ground. It was like hell, this woman says. Firefighters say the fires are under control tonight, with rains bringing some relief, while the search continues and the nation mourns. Kelly Cobiella, NBC News. Singer Demi Lovato is in hospital tonight after an apparent drug overdose. Paramedics reportedly found Lovato unconscious at her Hollywood home and administered Narcan. Her family says she's now breathing, stable, and alert. The 25-year-old singer has been open about her battles with addiction, including a stint in rehab. Ivanka Trump is shutting down her fashion brand and laying off all of her employees. Donald Trump's daughter making the announcement today, saying she wants to focus on her work in Washington. The brand has been in trouble since Donald Trump's election, with a number of retailers, including the Bay and Nordstrom, dropping it due to low sales. Ivanka stopped working with the brand after the election, but continued to receive profits and was able to view financial information. In Health Matters tonight, a popular summer snack for children has been recalled. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency is recalling Pepperidge Farm goldfish crackers with the blasted extreme cheddar flavor for possible salmonella contamination. The recall includes the 180-gram and 69-gram packages with dates for January and February of next year. There have been no reported illnesses so far linked to the crackers, but they should be thrown out or returned to the store where you bought them. Earlier this month, we told you about a B.C. team of ocean explorers who were off to study mountains hundreds of meters beneath the ocean surface. Well, they're back with some stunning deep-sea images, including video of some species they've never seen before. And now they're pushing to protect the natural wonders they've found. Linda Aylesworth reports. Among the scientists on board the internationally renowned vessel Nautilus earlier this month as it explored the waters off the B.C. coast, Dr. Cherise Dupree. Every marine biologist dreams about going out on the Nautilus one day. The team's mission? To better understand the little understood seamounts beneath the surface. It is amazing that we don't know more about these seamounts. Um, they are mountain ranges under our ocean and they support amazing diversity of life. That's what they suspected. The goal to prove it, which having just returned from a 16-day expedition, it seems they've done. 
It was nothing short of phenomenal. I don't use the word awe-inspiring very often. <laughs> Save it for special things, and this was absolutely amazing. During the voyage, they explored and mapped 12 of the 40 to 50 underwater mountains in the Northeast Pacific Seamount Range. It's like going to the Rocky Mountains at night for a week with a flashlight. And yet, they not only discovered new seamounts, they collected 150 live specimens, many potentially new species. 95% of the deep sea animals are new to science. We don't even know how many new animals we have in our collection. And then there was the abundance of life beyond their greatest expectations. Nobody's seen these forests of corals quite like this before, certainly not in our waters. Uh, red tree coral, hundreds of years old. Their findings are important if they're to achieve their next goal. We're moving towards creating that area, making it into Canada's largest marine protected area. Currently, 90% of seamounts have only temporary protection. Oceana Canada is recommending that we close all bottom contact uh, fishing uh, permanently on our seamounts. As well as permanent protection from future deep sea mining. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. A little something extra for beachgoers in Russia to show you. Right after the forecast, Mother Nature puts on quite a show over the Black Sea. Oh, looks wow. A little, looks a little scary. Uh, the heat can be scary when it starts cranking up the way it is. Let's go to Christy now with an update. Yes, I do want to say that I know a lot of people are enjoying the heat, but it comes with a big concern, and that's why it's prompted Environment Canada to issue these heat warnings. Two areas have been added today, the Fraser Canyon and the Fort Nelson region. The reason for it is we have this massive blocking pattern going on. We're going to see this right into the early parts of next week. Hot across the west, much cooler across the east. This is what we uh, expect when we have a heat warning. Highs ranging from 30 to 35. Today right through Sunday, you want to Stay hydrated, spend some time in air conditioning, maybe even head to a store in the afternoon during the peak heating hours just to cool yourself down a little bit. If you don't have air conditioning at home, use sunscreen, a hat, and of course, never leave pets or kids inside a car. That could be deadly. Now, I want to mention, though, temperatures in the interior are equally as hot. We're in the low 30s there. Why don't they have a heat warning? Well, because these temperatures are just a couple of degrees above seasonal. They could potentially have a heat warning, though, as they head towards the weekend as temperatures soar into the upper 30s. It is towards the early part of next week, Monday and into Tuesday, that we'll finally see a reprieve. Winds were on the good side of uh, the fire um, fight today. Uh, conditions were below what uh, the fire crews deem as uh, dangerous winds for blowing the fire. So great news, no lightning in that area today. But here's an idea of the fire danger rating across southern BC. We're talking about high to extreme in most areas and air quality advice advisories in place still across the Okanagan Valley, the Thompson region, and the East Columbia. There's your forecast for tomorrow, hot and dry. We do have a risk of thunderstorms in the BC Peace River area, East Kootenai region tomorrow. Otherwise, temperatures starting to rise in through the southern interior, south coast remaining similar to what you saw today, and we're going to see those conditions right through until the weekend before temperatures rise once again. We could see temperatures at 32 away from the water at that point, Chris. And I'll leave you with this beautiful shot from Souk. They had a bit of fog this morning. So during the sunset, or last night and this morning, so during sunset, it turned a little pink. Beautiful. Very nice pick from Lynn Edgett. Awesome. Thanks very much, Christy. All right, back to that water spout. Not exactly what you want to see during a day at the beach, but it was pretty exciting for people who saw it. 
Those vacationing on the southern coast of Russia spotted a gigantic waterspout over the Black Sea. The whirling column of air and water is a pretty rare sight there, but this was the second one this year. Luckily, the spout stayed well away from the beach and no one was hurt. Three, two, one, snip! The Coquitlam Crunch is now a bit crunchier. The grand opening today of an addition to the popular hike. There are now 894 stairs on the crunch, making it just over two kilometers long with an elevation of 240 meters. I really yeah, like this I like side. The side. There's more landings in between the stairs. So. Yeah, and it's, nice. it's just wider and I don't have to worry about jumping out of the way when it's busy, so that's pretty nice. Love it. The only thing we're missing is the bathrooms. <laughs> uh -huh. Apparently the bathrooms are coming in future upgrades. The crunch attracts as many as 50,000 people a month. I don't see a gondola there, but uh, I don't know about you. Back down too. I'm a little more Captain Crunch than Coquitlam Crunch. So, <laughs> so am I. All right. Uh, wow, what a story about this uh, young well, soccer phenom. We've, we've been talking about it really since last year, that yeah. sooner or later this was going to happen. Alfonso Davies was actually in Philadelphia today because that is where Bayern Munich is practicing as part of their preseason training and preseason games. He's likely there to take a physical. That would be the final hurdle before he signs a contract with Germany's most accomplished team. It's still not official official, but he will be a member of Bayern Munich. And it looks like he won't be able to play any games for them, though, until next January. Being just 17 means the Whitecaps will likely have Davies here for the rest of this season. But after that, he'll be off to Germany. Now, nobody knows how soon he could play for Bayern Munich, but when he does play for them, he'll be on one of the biggest stages with the brightest spotlights in soccer. Bayern Munich has won 28 German titles and five European championships, the latest being just five years ago. Now, Marcel Dion is someone who knows what might be in store for Alfonso Davies because he used to play in the Bundesliga. Soccer is a religion, you know, so and, and everything is you have like uh, six, seven, eight, nine newspapers every day writing about you, uh, criticizing you after every game. And uh, so you have to be mental, uh, mentally prepared for that. Uh, but uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a good boy. He's a good, smart uh, head on his shoulder. So uh, he'll be fine. Now, losing Alfonso Davies is not what the Whitecaps wanted, but they knew that this day would come. And in many ways, developing Davies might be one of the biggest achievements in the Whitecaps MLS history so far. He's developing into a wonderful player. I think over the last two months, you've seen the, the improvement, the rapid improvement over him, from him. But that's not happened just luckily from flicking a switch on. That's, that's been the two years development since he came into the team at 15 years of age. And you know, if the, the rumors are true, uh, the reports are the sums of money, you know, it's, a, it's an unbelievable achievement for the football club. It's also a profitable one. The numbers suggest the Whitecaps could get around 20 million Canadian from Bayern Munich for Alfonso Davies. It remains to be seen, of course, how the Caps decide to spend that windfall. But it's not just Vancouver that'll benefit from Davies going to Germany. Canada's national team will as well, because now their most talented youngster will be playing at the highest level, and that can only mean they'll get a better player to build the program around. No, it's, it's good. Uh, we, need to, we need more players like him, and uh, yeah, we have a bright future ahead of us for Canada. 
The annual Canadian Soccer Championship is in the semi-final stage tomorrow. BC plays Whitecaps game two against Montreal. Montreal won the opener 1-0. So the Caps need at least a 2-0 win to take this thing. They really need to shut Montreal out from keeping it from going to a tie-breaking situation where away goals become the tie-breaker. And despite it not being an MLS game, the players in the Whitecaps do take it seriously. It's, it's silverware. Um, club, uh, at a club level, you, you want to win trophies, you want to win medals. Um, and I've won three before, and I know how, how it feels to win. Um, and it's not a tournament that I, I want to uh, take. You don't take it lightly, you take it easily. Yes, we're Canadians, and I'm a proud Canadian, but surely the guys here understand what it means to win. Uh, again, last Wednesday we played, we were on a difficult road trip, and between DC and Seattle and we had to put our focus in the league games well obviously the results didn't show um, and the points on the board didn't show that anything reward for that um, but we took the game very seriously yeah I made a number of changes but I needed to for freshness reasons you know we'll go in Wednesday and you know there'll be some fresh faces in it but we're going out to win it we know we need to score two goals they're in good form at the moment they're a good team but we're at home we need to win this not only for the canadian championship but for our season to get that winning mentality back to get the team morale high again and and get confidence back in the squad because that is something we're lacking at the moment um we need this we need this canadian championship we need another trophy under our belts we need it for our fans we need it for this club Montreal Alouettes say quarterback Johnny Manziel will not start Thursday's game against Edmonton, but at some point he will get in the game. He doesn't know the playbook well enough to be given the start just yet. He only arrived to Montreal yesterday. But the Owls didn't trade for Johnny Manziel so he can sit on the bench for long. He might be starting their next game after Thursday. Second game Is every stadium and arena in this country named Rogers something or other? Uh, okay, Toronto in the air to at the Rogers Centre. Brian Dozier, sack fly, Randy Gritchuk. Will he get Joe Maurer? No, he won't. I made it 1 nothing in the sixth. Then with a score 2 nothing, Eduardo Escobar, the double E, gets an HR, and it's 5 nothing at that point for the Twins in the ninth. There you go. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Coming up on ET Canada, the latest news on the arrest of Headley frontman Jacob Hogard. Plus, Vikings, Turtles, and Doctor Who take over Comic-Con. All of that is coming up at 7 right after the news hour. But first, back to you, Chris. All right, Ross, thanks very much. Well, it's a mystery that, if solved, could lead to the preservation of one of the largest artifacts from that deadly Halifax explosion a century ago. Historians are debating what should be done with a mysterious chair that's believed to have been created using a piece of steel blown off a ship. Alexa McLean has more. Nestled between blades of grass sits what could be a historical artifact, connected to a century-old event that's forever shaped the cities of Halifax and Dartmouth. I think it would be one of the largest artifacts that we know of. Brian Lilly is part of a historical research group that's done extensive work on the Halifax explosion. They feel preserving artifacts from the explosion is critical but challenging due to just how powerful the blast was. Not that many pieces have been found in, in relation to how many fragments there were. They estimate that the ship blew into maybe 100,000 pieces and there are probably less than 100 that are in uh, collections that we know of. Katie Jean's family purchased the property the mysterious chair sits on in the late 1940s. She says the chair came with it. A piece of metal believed to be part of one of the anchors involved in the explosion. Cement laid around a piece of metal creating the chair. 
I just, I hope that it's not just my family that gets to enjoy it now. I hope everybody gets to see it. The property was recently sold and the family hopes the chair will be preserved. So do these historians. I think it's all the more reason to preserve it and, you know, to make sure that it doesn't get uh, tampered with or broken up into pieces or anything because it really needs to be studied by the people who, who know how to do that. It's been outdoors for a hundred years and it's managed just fine. So there is a possibility that it could be installed on a waterfront, for example. Uh, there's also an idea that it could go into a museum. Either way, I think it's really important that one of the museums is involved in the preservation of the piece. Alexa McLean, Global News, Dartmouth. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, we want to talk a little bit about, I spent last few days, as you guys know, in the Okanagan uh, covering the fires. They're, they're looking at a very warm forecast. But yes. It looks like at the moment, not too much of that wind that they were... Right. As we heard earlier, the worst case scenario right now would be as if a thunderstorm goes through and really kicks up the wind. But as it stands now with the heat and the winds the way they are, below what, they concern, what they're concerned about, mm -hmm. uh, we're okay. But the problem is with the heat comes the really dry conditions. So... Be careful out there because we don't have any lightning in the forecast. If any more fires are ignited, it's because of you, everyone. Yeah, human, so. human caused. Yeah. Uh, very quickly, happy birthday, Mom. Oh. Uh, I'm coming oh, home yeah, for happy dinner birthday, now. Mom. Nice. <laughs> happy birthday, Mom. Happy birthday.